Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we spoke with our friend, the Berlin-based journalist Elizabeth Zorowski. In part one, we discussed the upcoming French election and the rise of the far right in France. In part two, we went on to debate the evolving German response to the war in Ukraine. Part two is for subscribers only, so please consider joining us for a few dollars a month to gain access to this bonus content. A reminder to those of you who have already become members. Update your players to point to the subscriber-only feed to get the bonus content seamlessly attached to the first free part. As you may have noticed, Elizabeth and the political philosopher Samuel Kimbriel have joined the Wisdom of Crowds team as contributing writers. They'll be writing for us regularly and joining us to talk about events as opportunities arise. We're thrilled to have them on board. Feel free to give them a warm welcome in the comments or on Twitter, and keep an eye out for their work in our feed. We're excited about adding to the Wisdom of Crowds team and look forward to growing more in the coming weeks and months. We couldn't do any of this without you. Thank you for the support. Okay, on to the show. Um, Elizabeth, welcome. Listen, yes, thank uh, you. Uh, we want to talk about two things with you today. Um, the first one being France. Uh, we've got mm. a French election coming up. You have a masterful, magnificent, and quite long piece in uh, the New York Times that came out when? In March, was that? Yeah, it came out uh, actually maybe early April, just early before April. the first round of the, of the French election. Well, let me ask you one quick question. Did it come out before the panic hit about Le Pen uh, who is running in the runoff uh, against Emmanuel Macron this weekend? It came out, it's like, okay, this is a little bit of a sort of nerdy insider baseball sort of thing. But with these magazine stores, you essentially, you send them to print and then they come out like a week or sometimes even like eight or nine days later. Mm. And so we sent the piece to print and the polls were already sort of going wild because this was in mid-March and um, essentially it was the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the war that sent, that made the polls start to go kind of, kind of bonkers in France. And so um, those polls actually changed during the week in which we had already sent the piece to mm. the print and before, before it came out. And so, you know, on the one hand, it was a little bit unfortunate because um, that was when I think the... Um, the sort of economic effects of the war were really starting to be felt uh, in France and, and across Europe, but, but in France. And so um, that's when uh, Marine Le Pen, who had been running a campaign on cost of living, her numbers started to, um, to go way up. So it was a little bit unfortunate. On the other hand, I'm, I, I will argue um, that I think that the sort of main argument in my piece stands and that it will stand. And that's my prediction. And I, oh, of course it <laughs> I does. stick with it. But, um, but when the piece came out, it, it didn't necessarily look that, look that way. Let me, let me just share one um, little tidbit with you. I think I brought it up maybe in the bonus episode of, uh, of last week, uh, but it's something that, that our friend Ben Haddad mentioned um, to me. And just tell me if this sounds right to you as far as the, uh, what you, you know, as you were working on the piece and, and sort of talking to people. He said that, that uh, in France, where he's at right now in Paris, that you know, there was a palpable feeling when the war started that the populists were screwed because of their allegiance to Putin and that you know, yeah. this was a, a real setback. 
But he said that that what struck him when the panic hit, this is why I was asking you about when your piece came out, um, that the, 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 the panic revealed for him a different possibility, which was that earlier on the war, the French were actually really worried that the war would come to them, that it could go nuclear. And that at that point, Macron's sort of elder statesman uh, thing kicked in and all the other candidates really lost. And it was misinterpreted mm. as having had like a negative effect on uh, populism. And that what he thought uh, the surgeon Le Pen showed is less that, you know, he said French people still think Russia is the aggressor, is evil, it's wrong, the Ukrainians are heroes. But all of a sudden, that's over there for them. And that Le Pen's surge, again, sort of points to what her tactic was, which you just said, which was to basically run on bread and butter issues from the beginning. Um, I don't know, is that, does that sound right to you? Is that like... Uh... Um, well, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think to, what, to, to a certain extent, you have to look at, of course, uh, which groups of voters each of these candidates are are targeting. And so, of course, Marine Le Pen, you know, she has this, uh, she's been, her, her campaign has been focused on, um, let's say, uh, they say the popular voters, working class voters um, on both the left, potentially left and right side of the spectrum. Um, and so, of course, when the prices start to rise, those are the people who are going to really be feeling those those price increases. Not so much, you know, uh, Macron's um, proven, you know, <laughs> more uh, professional and higher salaried uh, voters, and who tend to be who tend to be urban, who tend to be, you know, not driving cars, not buying gasoline, that sort of thing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the sort of interesting test case here also is Eric Zemmour, because Eric Zemmour. Um, he also, of course, was a, a sort of Putin, Putin admirer and, and in some ways much more kind of ideological and much more sort of outspoken about it. I mean, he has this crazy quote where he said something about how, you know, he admires Putin as having, you know, having had the, having had the, um, the courage to try and restore a great nation to what it once was. And he said this a couple of years ago, but of course now that, that looks completely terrifying and, and, um, and, and even more sort of horrible than it might have been a couple of years ago. But anyway, Eric Zemmour's, uh, Eric Zemmour's voters are also, you know, um, more urban, wealthier, uh, more educated, and that sort of thing. And his numbers, his numbers sank, and they just they kept sinking, and they just stayed that way. So you kind of have to wonder, first of all, you know, are both are, are Marine, are Marine Le Pen's uh, voters, I don't want to sound condescending, but are they really paying attention to these sort of more, more are they the uh, ideological uh, questions about, you know, who's supporting Putin and why? And they're not the ones who are sitting, you know, in some wealthy suburb of Paris reading Le Figaro. They're sort of out in these more, uh, these more uh, rural areas. And, and just as some background, I mean, Zamor in the first round of elections end up with only about 7%, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, so yes. He, under, he, under, he underperformed. And it's worth noting to those who aren't really familiar with French politics, Zamor isn't just a right winger. He is very, very far right. And um, so for example, he supports the great replacement theory quite explicitly. And in somewhat lurid detail, he talks about Arabs and blacks and he's kind of racist, let's say, <laughs> and um, kind of racist. Uh, it is interesting though, that he's originally um, Algerian. Um, well, uh, his, his, parents, um, his parents are from Algeria, he's Jewish. And it, there was also an odd 
this odd development that the leader of a far a far right movement is Jewish, which is a new thing for French radical right politics. But he underperformed, and Marine Le Pen ended up with about twenty three twenty four percent in in the first round. So if we want to think about it, Marine Le Pen is the normal far right, and then Eric Zemmour is to the right of her. And these two individuals running for the presidency um, ended up gaining a significant swath of public support. So, you know, however this ends up, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, knock on wood, but Macron is likely to win. But even if, even if he does win by a wide margin, the French far right is a force of nature and it's growing and we can talk about why it's so compelling. And I think in your piece, it, first of all, I'll just you know reiterate what Demir said. It, it's a brilliant piece. I read it literally right before we recorded the podcast. It is long, but it is awesome. And um, I think it captures what I've tended to argue is one of the main dividing lines in France and in Western Europe, which is Muslims and Islam. And that really comes out in your article, I think there's someone who says to you when you're interviewing them that this election is a referendum for or against Muslims. And that's remarkable if we just linger on that for a moment, that with everything else going on, the pocketbook issues that Demir mentioned, but also the war in Ukraine, that the place of Islam in public life and the role of French Muslims um, is so paramount and is driving the conversation to such a degree, um, even to the extent, and I, I'd be curious, Elizabeth, if you could say more about this, that in the um, the mainstream center-right party, the Republicans in France, and they, they didn't do well at all in, in the first round, but in their primary, um, the interviewer or the host asked them what they thought about the great replacement theory, i.e. the idea that Muslims and black people and brown people are replacing the native French population and France will become maybe a Muslim majority state in 50 years, that none of them, none of the candidates in the primary for the mainstream center-right party were willing to explicitly disavow <laughs> the great replacement theory. So I have to say, I was, you know, I was pretty shocked by that. And I tried to express that in the piece. And, you know, again, as a reporter, and at least as a reporter in these kinds of pieces, you're somewhat limited to the types of things that you can say, because it, it, it is a reported piece. It's not an essay. And so I can't sort of explicitly always state what I think. But I had not been, you know, I used to live in Paris and I live in Germany. I had not been to France during essentially two years of uh, of the pandemic. And there was lots of turbulence that went on during that time. There were protests against uh, police violence, uh, ra racially uh, racially targeted police violence. There was t terrorist attacks. There was all sorts of stuff that happened. So I missed all of that. I came back in November of, for the first time in November of, what was last year? 2021. And so I just sort of, and I was in Paris and I was seeing people that I hadn't, yeah, yeah, um, that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I just was sort of, I was really surprised at the just total saturation of kind of talk about immigration and all this great replacement talk and that sort of thing. And so I happened to turn on the TV and I watched the, that first um, debate of Les Républicains, which is, again, the supposedly uh, center-right um, party in France. 
France and you have, um, you know, you have people who are running. Michel Barnier was a candidate. He was the EU uh, Brexit negotiator. So these are, you know, these are, uh, you know, mainstream French political uh, politi- political figures. Um, and yeah, and the moderator asked them if they would use, you know, if they would use the phrase great replacement and not a single one of them would sort of disavow it. They mostly kind of said, ah, well, you know, I don't really like that phrase, but, you know, it's true that the French people feel this way. And, you know, so I don't want Something's to going lie, on. And I don't want to deny <laughs> what French people feel. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just was really, I was really shocked by that, um, that none of them would dare to say like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is, you know, this is, there may be demographic change happening in France, like the country may be diversifying. A, there is a policy in France that they don't keep statistics based on race. So you can't, you don't have any sort of database where you can go and say, okay, this is what the, you know, this is what the population, the population of, let's say, of, you know, North African origin was 10 years years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and this is what it is. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, you're cutting out a bit. Um, can you, are you, how's your internet? Are you near a router or something like that? Because you're just, uh, you just dropped out a, a, for a couple of seconds. Okay. I am not near a router, but I could get, I can go to, go If you could near one, get near a router, that would be, that'd be great just so we can. Yeah. We know that Wi-Fi isn't good in Germany. Nothing's good in Germany. We'll get to that. Germany's <laughs> declining power. I think Germany is the new sick man, the new sick man of Europe. Um, no, it's true. Okay, but let's 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 stick to France. Um, so so well, here, 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 here's the question for you. Uh, you know, to your point about about uh, the demographics changing. Um, what strikes me is less about what's but, underlying but can I this. Just say, I yeah, think it's go one ahead. thing. Yeah, I just want to say it's one thing to sort of acknowledge, and I, this is what I meant to say in my piece, and I, it just sort of got cut out. But it's one thing to acknowledge that okay, there are demographic, there are demographic changes going on. It's another thing to say that like white people are being replaced by non-white people. It's you know, and 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 for politicians who are supposedly on the mainstream right to just sort of go along with that seems I was really shocked by that. What, what's striking to me, Elizabeth, you know, apart from the. Uh, whatever the underlying reality is, uh, the demographic reality. In a sense, maybe I don't even care about what the underlying reality is, the demographic mm. things. Like, these things happen, and, you know. But what's striking about it is that there's, there's, a, there's an erosion of a norm that seems to have happened yeah. in the intervening period. That, that even in the last election, you know, where Le Pen had her strongest showing, right, um, and still was handily defeated by uh, Macron in the second round, there was still a sense that, like, this was beyond the pale. And that seems to have shifted that that's some kind of norm, some social norm about yes. like things you just not talk about in French politics shifted. But let me then just ask you the other part, which is perplexing. And you can you know, I mean, but also really troubling, right, is that that in a way is a more normalized her because he was saying the really crazy, ugly stuff and saying it out loud, which allowed her to be sort of an economic populist saying, like, I just care about your pocketbook. But her brand is still there. The Le Pen brand is, I think you even mentioned uh, her niece, Marichal, talking about the strength of the Le Pen brand and the dog yeah. whistles that it it, yeah. it sort of sends to the public. That really resonated for me in the sense that that the fact that you have like a, a truly nutty candidate saying the really nasty stuff, um, in, a, in a weird way, then if she's not saying it out loud, but everyone knows yeah. what she stands for, it just makes everyone more comfortable with it. Yes, I think that's definitely, um, I think that's, that's, there's, that's definitely true. Um, I'll say two things. One is that, so 
Of course, Zemmour and Marine Le Pen are both, um, you know, they're both far right candidates, but they are addressing uh, different audiences. Uh, Marine Le Pen is speaking to a working class, you know, working class uh, sort of right wing, right wing um, voting segment. And Zemmour, his audience is really much more of this kind of urban, conservative, much more sort of Catholic, at least culturally Catholic, uh, wealthy, uh, in France, we would say, they would say uh, bourgeois, um, you know, people who are reading Le Figaro, which is the main sort of Wall Street Journal of France and who, who are sort of having debates in the pages of Le Figaro. So there's talking, they're, they're essentially talking to two separate groups of people. Um, and, um, and in some ways, this is, you know, this is kind of the classic, this is kind of the classic uh, right-wing divide in many in many Western countries. You have the same thing to a certain extent in the United States where like Trump, he needed to kind of appeal to both working class voters and he needed to get sort of wealthy, you know, business Republican elites on his side. So you have the same kind of kind of coalition type of thing. Um, but um, so Marine Le Pen and Zemmour are talking to... Um, are talking to different audiences. And and Marine Le Pen, though she is a far-right candidate, she's not really um she's not really part of this kind of, you know, conservative, intellectual, urban, Le Figaro reading and op-ed writing crowd that's based in Paris. And not only is she not really part of it, she's not participating in it, but the people who are part of it don't, they don't really like her, they look down on her, um, they don't consider her, you know, to be one of them. Um, so that's, you know, so, so, and, and it's in sort of this, this, uh, more urban bourgeois elite, you know, Catholic conservative crowd that these, that these really sort of, uh, more intellectual, if you want to call them intellectual, they're not really intellectual, but they are cultural, culture war debates, right. That are going on. So it's really in, in sort of Zemmour's crowd and the people whose ears he has that all this this conversation about the so-called great replacement is happening marine le pen is sort of on the outside of that in a way and so and especially in the election this year she really kind of focused on um on trying to uh trying to get those those working class voters so so that's part of it is that they're in some ways talking to different people and talking about different things and zamur is the one who's really sort of carrying on this culture war um, but, but yeah but, but it's yes sorry i mean <laughs> but it, it, so you know shadi said earlier on you know if you add up zamur uh, zamur's numbers and le pen's numbers you have a yes. you know a strikingly high number of the electorate voting for you know what i think your your article pretty persuasively says is is actually motivated by a, a kind of very virulent xenophobia and uh, anti-Islamism, yes. right? So, but but it's interesting what you say there, though. At the same time, you know, the fact that Le Pen shifted to this sort of economic populism did she did she just shift her traditional low information voters from a focus on xenophobia? to pocketbook issues and just kept them? And then Zemmour just added some wealthy people who also just happened to hate Muslims? Is that what happened? Or, you know, like, how, how's the, the anti-Muslim coalition being built, I guess, is the question. So I think that it's partly it's not, I, I think what you see is that you have the potential. So this is partly sort of the point of my story, right? Is that you can see if you, as Shadi said, if you add up Marine Le Pen's voters, you add up Zemmour's voters, that you have a significant part of the population um, but as of right now, there's still two separate sort of voting voting sectors. And so um, you're so what they need is one person who can come in and speak to both of them. And both of those different groups of people like this person are willing to vote for them. And that person would potentially be able to win. And so you, that hasn't happened yet. And so that's everyone thinks that that will be Marine's niece, Marielle Marichal. But 
that's an unproven, so, unproven. So I guess thesis. a deeper, a deeper question that I've been struggling with, and it, I think it requires someone to be on the ground and to get some of the distinctive color from right-wing rallies, which you were able to attend um, at various points during during the campaigning. When you're, you know, being being in France and sort of like absorb absorbing the surrounding sentiment. What do you think the fear of Muslims or antagonism towards them is fundamentally about? And how obvious is it to you? And and maybe just tell us a little bit more about what you experienced and how you're making sense of that. Because I think for American listeners, you know, we have we have racism and we have anti-Muslim sentiment, but it's not like what we're talking about in France, at least as it relates to, to Muslims specifically, and even when it comes to um, racism against Blacks or Hispanics, there's there people, mo- Republicans or Trump supporters tend to rely more on veiled messages. You're not supposed to be very, very outward in your racism, where I think, right. as we've been talking about, in, in France, some of this discourse that is explicit has be- has become normalized. So just walk us through through that. I didn't really get into this in my piece and it's just, it gets to be kind of a delicate thing, but you know, you have, um, you have a kind of like rural sort of emptying out as you have in the United States, right. A sort of like urban, uh, economy sort of congealing in urban areas and that more exurban and rural areas are losing that they're, you know, they're losing businesses, they're losing services, they're losing all that sort of thing. And so you have like a lot of towns out in the French countryside, this is very well documented that like that are sort of dead and empty and, you know, the downtowns are empty and the storefronts are empty and the, you know, there's just, there's just nothing there the way that there was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, whatever. Um, And then what happens is that you have, um, you know, you have immigrant families moving into these towns. And, you know, what happens is that sometimes that these, you know, these immigrant families or immigrants, sometimes they're, you know, they're men who are coming from North Africa, that sort of thing. And that they, they're sort of hanging out in these sort of empty, empty downtown, empty downtown areas. And French people see that and they, they don't like it. And I... It is and, and what don't they like about it? And, and you don't have to worry about being too delicate with us. Yeah. We're all friends here. And, yeah. uh, and no one's I listening. Mean, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's, I mean, it is essentially, it's a, it's a race. Okay, it's like, it's a race reaction. Like they see non-white people hanging out in their empty downtown areas. And that's, they think that first of all, it's dangerous. They think it's bad. They think it's the great replacement. And they think that they're like formerly nice little French towns are being taken over by. And that's, that's, has, that's, that's the. Sure. Yeah. Has crime gone up though? I mean, is there, is there, is there a basis around it? I mean, oftentimes has, there is in this sort of stuff, yes. right? That's the, that's like crime and poverty ends up exacerbating the, the kind of uh, nervousness and bigotries that, you know, are latent in any one group and especially in sort of small towns that haven't seen this and, you know, strangers, they happen to be different, different faith, different color skin come in and all of a sudden crime goes up and there you go. QED, right? Um, that's, that's. And I think crime has gone up, although I'm not certain the extent to which this is like a recent thing as there has been a crime surge, you know, since the pandemic started in the U S and, and elsewhere as well. Mm. So I don't know how but much look, of that is like yeah. super recent or. But, longer. but crime doesn't have to go up for you to feel that it's gone up. So a lot of right. this is about sure. impressions and perceptions. And, you know, we're living in a post-reality world in some sense <laughs> where, I mean, I remember I was watching this um, this documentary called Philly DA about 
uh, progressive district attorney, Larry Krasner, who was elected in Philly, um, you know, my hometown a couple of years back. And he, he keeps on going to these town hall meetings where he, he has all these statistics and he's like, hey, guys, everyone is criticizing me for letting out criminals and for crime going up. But here are the numbers and they actually haven't gone up or they've only gone up a little bit in certain categories. And he thinks that by offering up facts, he can uh, address some of these concerns and get people to chill. But what he finds out is that facts are irrelevant because if you think and feel that crime is a problem, then that's your own reality in some sense. So I think it's, so I, does it really matter if crime has gone up? I mean, especially yeah. if there's like high profile no, incidents that's... that are publicized and then everyone starts, oh, did you hear about that incident, you know? Right. And I think also, you know, in France, there is this culture. It's like they have this sort of race blind culture where they don't they have these, you know, enlightenment ideals about universalism, blah, blah, blah. We don't talk about race. We don't identify people by race. We don't keep statistics by race. We don't talk about, you know, we just don't acknowledge essentially the existence of race. That's the sort of French uh, cultural tradition. And so what they do instead is they talk about Muslims. Right. Like they see non-white people hanging out in their downtown areas, or whatever, and they say, "Oh, like it's Muslims." And so but it's you not get just this. that they, mm. you get. But this. it's not just that they look different, though. I mean, because there, there's an additional component that that relates to the civilizational or cultural concerns that, that you that you talk about in your piece. That essentially you have these far right figures who want to defend French civilization. So they see they see this as kind of an epic, almost metaphysical battle. And Muslims, at least as far as I can tell, seem to figure prominently because they represent a competing civilizational orientation, or at least that's the perception, that they challenge the sense of Frenchness that many French have taken for granted. And they're introducing new cultural and religious outlooks, especially when it, you know, as it relates to the fact that Muslims are disproportionately observant compared to non-Muslims in France because um, there aren't that many Catholics, practicing Catholics left and so forth. So how, how, how do you see the kind of civilizational aspect of it? Because what was, you know, what's really cool is that I think you got a chance to hang out with uh, Marichal, the, the kind of, um, uh, Le, Le Pen's niece, who is the kind of rising star of the French right, and she seemed like you guys had a nice, I don't want to say you had a nice back and forth, but you you um, you have this amusing sentence where you say that, you know, when, you, when you're entering the building to meet with Marichal, you assume that she'll be distant and cold and all of that, but she was kind of chummy with you and she was wearing somewhat casual clothing. But then, you know, she seems accessible and like nice and... I was going to say fun, but I'm not sure if she's like a fun person to hang out with. I mean, it's, but, um, but then she says certain things that completely belie this kind of casual chill vibe that she had with you and where she does really emphasize, I think she says something like authority, order, civilization. She mentions all these like things that characterize the far right neo-authoritarian mindset. And that to her is what yeah. orients her politics. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, I think, I think you, um, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, just to, to, I mean, ask you and even maybe, I don't know, 
if if this is true though, but when you 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 look at what Zamor did, right, and it's what what Shadi's getting at is is the sort of tension between you know also there's Frenchness, but there's Frenchness as embodied in laicite, and then you know even our our most progressive French friends will take offense uh, at you know the insistence of certain you know, recalcitrant <laughs> Muslim communities unwilling to assimilate to these values and ideals of French society. And that's the laicite debate. But that's not exactly what Zamor is going after, right? I mean, it's not, it's not this open faithfulness uh, as such. It's, it's, it's much more it's gritty, of, right? It's grittier it is, xenophobia. It's, you know, they're, again, they're using this sort of laicite, nice sort of legal framework, uh, as a as a crutch to lean on and say, oh, everything that we're doing is, you know, part of French legal and cultural tradition and blah, blah, blah. But basically what that is, is that they don't, they don't want any visible sign of Islam in France because they still hold on to France as this sort of historically Christian nation, right? And it's, that's just it. I mean, sorry, it's, you know, they don't, they don't want to see they don't want to see Islam in France. That's not how they think of France. That's not how they conceptualize of France. That's not how they think of French identity. And they just don't want to see it. So they use they use these laicite, you know, laws which are have been distorted and that sort of thing to say like no visible, you know, no visible signs of 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 Islam in in France because you know uh, Islam is not you know is not uh, part of historical French culture and identity. And I think you know I think you could you can definitely. Um, you can definitely argue with that, which I have tried to do, um, because of course, um, you know they say that Islam is not part of French tradition, it's not part of French history. But of course, Algeria was part of France for 130 years. So, and it was not even a colony; it was literally part of France. So they had this whole territory that was, you know, that was that, that, that Muslim. Didn't, that didn't go so well, though. At the end, it turned out. It didn't turns go so out well that didn't go end. so well. Yes, no, that's true. But then on the other hand, you have. You know, you have all these young people who are our age who were born who were born in France, and their families, you know, their families are Muslim. And you can't you can't just say to them like, no, your identity is not French, therefore you must hide it. You just can't do that. I mean, you can try, and that's what they're trying to do, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't create a very uh, serene or cohesive civic body. Let's say. Well, so let's talk about the the. Where we are at the elections, though. So that was in the run-up. Uh, she outperformed in the very run-up to the first round. People were really terrified that, you know, she may even tie Macron. And, you know, some polls were showing, like, really neck and neck. He did pull ahead. Um, and then, uh, since then, he seems to be, have, t- the last two weeks, he seems to have dominated. And there were, uh, we're recording on Thursday, on yesterday, last night, there were debates that I know I didn't watch. Shadi, you didn't watch either, right? Um so I don't know, Elizabeth. Maybe maybe tell us a little bit about how that went, and maybe tell a little tell us a little bit about what the state of the race is right now, and what do you make of it all? Um, well, the debate was, of course, I don't know how much you um, know or remember from the last presidential race uh, five years ago in two thousand. Le Pen did uh, terrible, right? And it was like a, a total embarrassment that, right or no? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. So there was a de- yeah, debate between Le Pen. And Macron, and she just was, um, 
she just, it was very embarrassing for her. She just came across as being totally incompetent and didn't know what she was talking about. And, um, you know, she, she just totally sort of flopped after that. And so I think everyone was, of course, bracing themselves for a repeat of that. And, oh, you know, Marine Le Pen had five years to prepare. Has she, you know, has she improved? Has she gotten better? And by all sort of accounts, she did do better <laughs> last night. She didn't have any sort of blatantly embarrassing moments. So, um, so you know, good good for her. She, she sort of improved her image and her, um, at least suggestion. Did she win of, any point? Did, did she win at all? Like it, if we want to talk about winners, I know that's a very American thing that we watch debates and we want to pick some person who won and rank them and all that. But is there a, is there a sense from the coverage you've seen of who came out on top or who, or who, or who benefited the most in terms of exceeding expectations? Well, um, so there was a poll that was done, you know, of some one of them, you know, sort of center right magazines did a poll and there was something like 50 something percent thought that Macron won and, um, you know, 30 something percent thought that Marine Le Pen won. But of course, it really depends. <laughs> it really depends who you ask, because I was watching, you know, Twitter feeds of of you know, sort of Macron people, and they all said that he did brilliantly. And then if you sort of read these articles about like Marine Le Pen viewers, like, no, she was wonderful because she was calm and she was serene and she was in control. And Macron, um, you know, Macron, he, um, he, um, he came across as uh, very knowledgeable and very sort of technocratic and very sort of immersed in details and very competent and that sort of thing, but also completely uh, completely condescending. He just sort of arrogant, one might yeah. say. Yeah. I saw this yeah. uh, Twitter meme where it was like it said something like, "Oh, in the lead up to the elections, Macron's biggest liability is his arrogance, and you know he should be aware of that." And then it just like cuts to these different photos taken from the debate where he just exudes, and maybe he can't help it. Like you know, I, I don't mean to be mean. I mean, obviously, I want Macron to win and all that. Um, but, um, he seems like he can't help himself. He, that's just a look like resting arrogant face. <laughs> that's what Macron has popularized, yeah. I think. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And there's also, there's this like famous line that he said in 2017 that became scandalous, but he made some, like one of his, you know, more, more famous arrogant remarks was like, oh, you know, I walk through the train station and I see those who are successful and those who are nothing. And he like, that was like the look in his <laughs> eyes for the whole evening was just staring at Marine Le Pen, like you, you are nothing and I am successful. Like, it was like you don't deserve was- to be here. It's like, why are you here on the stage yeah. with me? Do you know who I am? I'm the president and, and I am the state it's like almost like he embodies the french state and they're but the french like that right mind the french like that in their in their leaders unlike the americans who are proper democrats the french love an imperial <laughs> sort of napoleonic figure to lead them i mean yeah. not wrong right not wrong at all not wrong yeah. at all. these are stereotypes <laughs> yeah that are usually <laughs> grounded in truth shot yeah. we all know that all stereotypes are grounded in, in truths deep truths um, but they are, of course, the, you know, the, de- the debate is that they are fighting for the voters who um, voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is the far left candidate in the first round. He got somewhere around 20 percent. And these are your sort of left wing voters uh, in France and that they are Macron and Le Pen are fighting over those voters because Macron will need to get enough of them to vote for him in order to beat Marine Le Pen on Sunday. But those people tend to be very skeptical of, of Macron and they 
they will be more put, they, they would tend to be more put off by his arrogance than your sort of. But they're not going to vote for her, right? I mean, he, he, Melanchon himself, the sort of the far left guy, because the socialists, that's the other story, just completely have imploded. They just don't yes. even exist anymore. All you've got is, is this like Macron and his party in the center and then uh, the fascists on the one hand and then the, you know, uh, Melanchon crazies like the Bernie bros on the other side. Yeah. Um, like it's. No, it's, Demir, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and so so uh but Melanchon told him not to vote for her, right? I mean, he said, you know, you can stay home if you want, but uh, you know, if you really hate Macron so much, but don't vote for her. Or did I miss that? He did. No, no, that's yeah. true. Um supposedly if enough of Melanchon's voters were to stay home, that would also be bad for Macron. And then on the other hand, I and also I think you have probably a certain number of Melanchon voters who are these kind of, you know, also like the Bernie Sanders Trump voters who are sort of like the like shoddy. System, like I might as well just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mean, they want to well burn it all down, and they're like, yeah. "Let's heighten the contradictions, and let's yeah. create the conditions for the dialectic, and all that like <laughs> communist stuff." There's yeah. probably a bunch of them who think these things, yeah. like Gramsci. Just, I, just, I can just like na- <laughs> I can just name random, random European left philosophers by their last names, but yeah. So. Um, Okay, but it, it does seem. So there's probably I guess, some of those, but probably not, 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 not that many. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess you know, um, and before we maybe shift over to Germany, which um, we definitely should talk about. One more thing I wanted to just raise for consideration is, and we sort of alluded to it that are you know are the French Democrats um, in the small mm. D sense, or is there this kind of this kind this silent reservoir of french folks who like who long for the pre the pre-republic days i mean we're at the third republic now but um there are some french people who don't necessarily oh so, so <laughs> sorry that, <laughs> yeah, that was that was it, it, my bad the fifth republic five of them that's so many oh my god I know there was a little, a little but bit some of them have the never middle, come. Yes. To, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. But yeah. um, so some people never really fully came to terms with the new order and they fantasize about the pre Fifth Republic days. So in some sense, they're not even loyal to the regime as it's currently constructed. And in that sense, they're not quite like American Americans on the right who because we, we don't really have a first republic or a previous republic, we just have America. So you can't really go, I guess you can go back in time to different time periods, obviously, but you can't necessarily say that you want to go back to a previous American regime because we've never had one. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's totally right. I think that Americans, you know, for the most part, (laughs) with a couple of exceptions, but for the most part that we sort of uh, consider the beginning of the American Republic um, to be 1776, and we, we've always been a democracy. Of course, yeah, you can talk about the sort of mm, pre-colonial, whatever, that's a different discussion. But anyway, most, most, most Americans sort of like only see themselves as living under democracy, but French, French, uh, French memory is much longer than that, and, um, and they entertain uh, different possibilities of different kinds of regimes in a way that we, that we, I think that we don't. So yeah, I think that's 
think. But again, yeah, another not, stereo. We're not talking about another royalists, stereo. though, right? I mean, you're not talking well, about. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I'm sure they exist. That that legitimists them, but... exist, and that's not what we're talking about here, though. Really, what we're talking about is French France for Frenchmen, which I just hasten to add is not undemocratic, shoddy. That's all. You know, no, like, no, no. no you're talking pure. about something yeah. different. I uh, know. I'm not saying no. That's different. It's yeah. not French for Frenchmen. It's yeah. actually preferring a different regime in a quite literal sense, because with the founding of the Fifth Republic with de Gaulle, yeah. this is now a different foundation for French legitimacy in the in the post-war era. Um, that, I mean, it's, so it's not just they want France for Frenchmen or French France for French people, um, because you could have that with the current order. You don't need to necessarily go to an original regime for that. So I think it's it's at a deeper foundational level, perhaps. But look, I mean, French people have longer memories. The stereotype of Americans is that, you know, we live perpetually in the present and, you know, um, all these things are, are not exactly true in practice. And, you know, we obviously have Americans who maybe long for the late 1700s. Well, actually, we probably don't because that's when slavery was still going on. And I think most Americans don't like that. But anyway, this is all just to say that maybe we should talk about another country. Well, I mean, here, here's here's maybe the, the way I'd pivot to the, the your other essay, the one you wrote for us, uh, Elizabeth, on Germany. Um, but it's it's something that's been sort of on my mind watching the, the French election. And, you know, let's 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 hope that that. Uh, our discussion here doesn't seem hopelessly naive when Marine Le Pen comes out, uh, <laughs> right. you know, victorious because of all yeah. these hidden people who are lying to pollsters and who really are just moved by I, her. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I can just say something really quickly is that French pollsters have been dealing with shy Le Pen voters for much longer than American pollsters have been dealing with shy Trump voters. So they figured out how to project that okay. shy. Okay, all right, good, good. So they good. should be more Ooh. accurate. Yes. All right. Well, that's that's good to know, and that's that's heartening. So, uh, you know, <laughs> let's let's but let's let's assume then, um, you know, you have this uh, uh, Macron restoration um, that that you know the, the forces of sanity, uh, or at least uh, you know mainstreamism, liberal mainstreamism, uh, uh, prevail in France uh, this weekend. I, I guess the the thing that that was most striking to me is, again, what I, I posited to you before, is, um, and again, Shadi and I went over some of this material last week talking about whether this crisis in Europe is, you know, uh, heralding potentially the, the rebirth of a kind of, again, uh, sensible or maybe even revolutionary liberalism, or at least a, a yeah. heightened commitment to it yeah. uh, and to the values, and which is, I think is quite reflected in your essay, it was a certain kind of, you know, uh, uh, at least in, when you were writing it uh, several weeks ago, uh, this this you know awakening in Germany of you know uh, what's at stake, uh, yeah. what what underpins our societies, um, and then yet that's why I brought up that 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 yeah. you know analysis from Ben about Le Pen, um, and then we're watching Germany. Yeah. Um, first, the other thing that happened uh, is Orban got elected, basically yeah. along the yeah. similar uh, using, using similar kind of. You know, I'm saving you from chaos in the world, and it resonated. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whatever the fairness of that election, he right. he he did well. He managed to, to to mobilize people, and his arguments worked. Then you saw it again with Le Pen. She, you know, even if she loses handily, will have outperformed uh, more than likely will have outperformed uh, previous efforts. No. Um, and and I and you know, in Germany, the striking thing has been watching it. Um, you know, there was that moment Schultz came out. 
What's the German word for that paradigm shift? What did he call yeah. that? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's that's what we feel when when he says there's a paradigm shift and there isn't. That's Schadenfreude. <laughs> But, but um, uh, you know, there was this big announcement and a, and a big to-do. We had a, a German parliamentarian uh, swing by the offices, you know, give us a, a talk about it. And he, he, he was a, uh, his analysis to us uh, think tankers was, uh, at the Atlantic Council, was saying that it was the last moment Schultz could have done that because Ger- he felt that Germany's credibility was already so battered on yeah. the European things. He described it in a really good way. He said he was, uh, the train was leaving the station and Olaf Scholz is running down the, yeah. <laughs> at the uh, down the station. He leaps across the station, <laughs> grabs onto the railing of the last car uh, to, to save Germans, uh, Germany's sort of, you know, uh, respectability within Europe, given what's been going on in, in, uh, in Ukraine. But ever since then, uh, it seems that he has been uh, slow you know, I mean, slow rolling a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, yeah. very cautious about arming Ukraine. I, you know, I keep following it. There are ins and outs and probably there'll be more ins and outs by the time we publish this. But um, uh, really very concerned about the the energy situation. You know, uh, yeah. you know, Germany's very exposed to Russian oil and gas. Yeah. So I don't know, yeah. you know, I, what what's your sense about what's going on there? I mean, you know, very you can take that from any way. You want to talk about Germany, you want to talk about Europe and populism and where we stand. I don't know. Okay, one thing I'll clarify, though, people should know that if it's not already clear, Elizabeth is quite literally in in Berlin as we speak. She is there. So it's incredible that we're talking to her, even though she's so far away. Technology is amazing. Yeah. And also her her essay that we've been referencing that she wrote for us at Wisdom of Crowds, it has a very nice title. Um, It's called The End of History Dies Hard in Berlin. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So make sure to check that out as well. But yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth, go ahead. That's it for part one, dear listeners. In the subscriber-only part of the pod, we continue the conversation with Elizabeth, switching gears to talk about Germany. Are its problems and its blind spots the same as those of liberalism writ large? Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. See you there.